And of course, I sold those NFTs and moved it to safety, which was Bitcoin, and then boy, did that fall. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Tom Wall. Tom, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I am. Nice to see you, Andrew. And you too, and you too. As my father always said, if we lived any further away, we would be closer. We're almost exactly on the other side of the world. You <laughs> in the Boston area, me in the Southeast Asia area in Bangkok, Thailand. I want to just introduce you to the audience so that they can get to know who you are and what you are doing. And so Tom holds a PhD in retirement income planning with original research on whole life as a fixed income alternative under the advisement of industry thought leaders. His focus on academics and selling from a place of integrity comes from a 20-year career of positioning whole life insurance and competing against its alternatives. Recently, he has published the book, Permission to Spend, Maximize Your Retirement with the Best Kept Secret in Personal Finance. Starting in college as an award-winning advisor with Northwestern Mutual before moving his practice to Mass Mutual, he subsequently grew his career in prominent home office sales and marketing leadership roles. Tom has been a well-known storyteller at nationwide perennial company conferences and firm meetings. Tom now coaches and consults with financial advisors, hosts the Whole Life Mastermind Study Group, and authors multiple pieces of original thought, leadership, books, and other content. My goodness, Tom, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Well, thank you for that very kind introduction, Andrew. You know, I'm on a mission as of a couple of years ago. I left that career as an advisor and, you know, basically a product expert for a big Fortune 100, you know, home office in, in the financial services space. A couple of years ago, I left and decided to go out on my own and kind of take my talents to individual advisors and their clients talking about what I think, as you heard in the, the subtitle of my book, what I think is the best kept secret in personal finance. You know, kind of the way you open the show talking about helping investors reduce risk. I really believe that if you can reduce the risk or even shift it elsewhere to other parties, what it does is it gives you permission to spend your other assets, invest more aggressively, and do all the things that you know the academics have proven over and over again should pay off for you as long as you can ride those waves. But you know, without that, without that piece of your portfolio, it's pretty difficult to do that. And for the listeners out there that don't know what whole life insurance means, can you explain it in simple terms? Yeah. So there's really two flavors of life. I mean, there's there's an unlimited number of flavors of life insurance, but generally speaking, there's two categories. There's term and permanent. So term is, you know, if you die within 20 years, they pay out and it's dirt cheap because you're not going to. <laughs> the other one is is permanent life insurance, which pays out when you die, not if you die. So even if you live 60 years, it will pay out when you die. So as such, it tends to have a much higher premium. The feature of that product, generally speaking, is that it builds a guaranteed cash value that rises every single year. The only question is how fast does the company enhance that growth with their dividends? And most of these big old mutual life insurance companies have been paying them for probably 150 years almost at this point. 
So those are kind of the two flavors. One can be viewed, or the latter can really be viewed almost as one of your investments, if you think mm. about it that way, an alternative for cash and other safe stuff in your portfolio. And, you know, when I was born, my father opened a whole life insurance policy on me. I have no idea where he came up with the idea, but he thought it was a good idea. And I still pay $130 a year for that, my mm -hmm. annual premium. And I'm just, you know, it was obviously set at a very small amount because, you know, my dad didn't have much money when, when I was born. And also, you know, it just, it was a long time ago that it was set. Now the cash value of that has risen over time as the as the firm has been reinvesting and investing that money as long as I'm paying the what's it called the premium that premium yeah but I'm just curious like what's the what is the return that you would expect on a whole life policy that's held for a long period of time is it an equity return is it a stock return is it somewhere in between or how how would you think about what type of return someone's getting on that product? It really depends. But if you think about it over a very long period of time, we're talking you know decades and decades, mm. you're going to get a bond-like return, maybe slightly better than you would have gotten in bond. And it's really because if you think about the way the policy performs, you know you're putting premium dollars into the insurance company's general investment account. You know they're going to they're going to reserve that money for decades to come because they have to have that money available when you die. It's not an actuarial science thing there. They're actually going to, they know they're going to pay that money out if you buy a million dollar policy today down the road. So generally speaking, they're investing in long-term corporate bonds from the highest rated companies around the world. You know, there's government bonds in there. A lot of the big dividend paying mutual life insurance companies will also own subsidiaries. So mm -hmm. investment subsidiaries or other types of insurance companies, which also add to the profitability. So you can kind of think of you know the performance on these contracts as mirroring the long end of the yield curve. So as each year as the money goes into these corporations, they're investing in you know 10, 20 year duration bonds get to get the highest yield they can because they don't need liquidity. They're not worried about actually you know being needing to sell those bonds. They're just going to hold them to maturity and keep getting those interest payments to support that base. So over time, it all kind of averages out. But it really depends. I mean, if you die young, it's a really nice return on your life insurance. <laughs> You don't get to see it, but the longer that you live, the more it just kind of looks like a long-term bond. And if somebody if somebody has a portfolio, let's say they got mainly stocks and some bonds, what is the place or what is the the attributes of whole life insurance in relation to that portfolio? Like, how do you look at it? Well, so here's the thing. So if there's one if there's one reason. One big reason people don't buy whole life insurance, we'll just throw it out there, that the first couple of years, you don't really have much to show for what you've paid in. You know, you've paid in thousands or tens of thousands or heck, even mm -hmm. more potentially. And there's almost nothing there. So all the pundits will say, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever put your money into a vehicle where the money's not there? And the, the reason is, you know, because you, you're buying death benefit, you're buying protection, you're protecting your family, you're protecting your business interests, and you're, you're essentially buying into an inevitable gain when you die. So if you have loved ones, there's a huge benefit to having that. But that's the catch. The low early values are the catch. For me, you know, I think my biggest policy I bought almost 15 years ago now, and now I'm way past all that. Now I've got more money in the policy than I paid in. Every time I make a contribution that year, the policy goes up by more than I contributed. I think it's growing at over 5%, mm -hmm. completely risk-free right now and, ta and taxless in the United States. There's no tax on the inside buildup of cash value. So for me... I haven't had money in an actual savings account for well over a decade, because why would I? If I have cash values growing at over 5% taxless and riskless, why, why would I do that? 
So that piece, the other piece is if you think about it in terms of bonds, like I was just saying, if it's backed by a big bond portfolio, and that's kind of how the performance is generated. But through the contract, the company is guaranteed away all risk, which is absolutely present in bonds, especially the way interest rates are today. For me, that's also my bond portfolio. It's outside of you know my retirement account, things like that. But it allows me to be more aggressive with my retirement account and my other investments because I know I have that stable, accessible piece. Um, I think that's it, where it fits for a lot of people. It, it's a great point about an alternative to cash deposits. And there are some people that are, they have their money in cash deposits and they just are scared of other options. But here you have an alternative for that. And as you say, there's a tax benefit of that. And the other thing that I'm hearing from you is that because of the long-term nature of their investing, you can expect that they will be able to bear the risks that would lead to the higher returns in the bond portfolio. So if you were just measuring the performance of a bond portfolio that you would typically own, it's going to be a shorter maturity in almost all likelihood compared to that one. And so over time, let's say you're going to get an uptick in your return, hopefully. Is that the way to look at it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, if for very wealthy folk, you know, unless you're one of the very wealthy folks, generally speaking, you do need liquidity. So if you're investing in bond funds, you know, as you saw last year, when interest rates spike, especially off of a, an all-time low, you know, you're exposed to a lot of loss. Technically speaking, so are the insurance companies. I mean, if they were to sell these bonds on the open market, they would be selling them at a discount and be losing money. They just don't have to sell. I mean, they have they have predictable cash flows of premiums coming in the door. And obviously they're they're managing managing their liabilities against that. And they have huge amounts of surplus. Like they they have piles of cash on top of that just to meet obligations. So yeah, over time, if you think about it, you know, like a bond ladder, if you will, you know, the concept of a bond ladder, it's essentially if anyone doesn't understand the concept of a bond ladder, it's essentially just you own a bucket of bonds and you bought all of these bonds at different interest rate environments over time. And you can kind of think of it as your portfolio average. You know, if you average all those interest rates together, the coupon payments on those bonds you're getting. So these insurance companies have been have been seeing falling dividends for four decades now because they've been buying bonds at lower and lower and lower interest rates since the early 80s. We're probably on the other side of that now, though, because if you look at the prior 40 years, you know, from 1940 through 1980, you saw their dividend going up mm-hmm. every single year as they average in higher and higher and higher interest rates. So it's an interesting point in time now. If we are in a rising interest rate environment, you know, for a prolonged period like we saw in the 60s and 70s, whole life insurance actually participates positively in that while historically bonds have suffered quite a great deal. I didn't understand about that. What's the relationship of the dividends of the insurance company in relation to the bond portfolio that they're managing, which is funding your eventual payout in your your whole life policy? Yeah, so if you think about, you know, actuarial school in 30 seconds is, if you're going to issue a million dollar whole life policy, those companies are typically guaranteeing you have a million dollars of cash value also at age 100. So it's essentially just discounted cash flow. It's, you know, what do I need to collect from this person over the next however many years, assuming that I'm going to earn between two and 4% on that money, mm. such that I grow it to a million dollars at the end of the day. So it's, you, you could do that on a financial calculator. Yeah. The actuarial school comes, you know, mortality and expense charges and all the things the company has to worry about. That's the hard part. But the other part's just math. So every year when they pay a dividend, and they've done it since Civil War times, when I say they, I'm talking about all the big mutuals like Northwestern or Mass Mutual mm-hmm. or Guardian or all these big American you know, mutual companies. They've been doing it for a very long time. There's three components to the dividend. You know, One is mortality, basically 
less people dying than worst case scenario. There's there's expense, which is you know managing it efficiently. But the biggest of all is probably over time is going to be the investment component, which essentially represents if they made a 4% guarantee and they're paying six, it represents the additional 2% interest that their general investment account is getting over what they guaranteed. Modern policies can be guaranteed as low as 2%, which sounds bad, but actually for a lot of reasons is good for the consumer in terms of the amount of money they can pay in. So that's where the interest rate comes in. Essentially, they make a guarantee. They guarantee cash values will rise. They will, they will guarantee that million dollars happens at age 100. But with non-guaranteed performance, you know they're going to outperform that. And that's kind of how you participate in the rolling long end of the yield curve in their big old bond ladder that they're, that they're holding. It's an interesting point too about you know what happened when interest rates rose dramatically when the Fed you know kind of went crazy and rose rates basically the value of the bond portfolios collapsed at the banks and anybody holding bonds technically everything in theory is kind of marked to market you want to think of things as being marked to market and therefore bond portfolios collapsed in value and they've stayed collapsed I mean it's not like the interest rates went back down. And so now in the case of a bank, the big risk that a bank faces is that depositors say, I want my money back. And then, oh crap, an unrealized loss that I thought I could wait out has now become a realized loss. Whereas with an insurance company, there's no depositors coming and saying, hey, give me my money back. And therefore there's the, the funding source is super solid. And as a result of that, they're not forced to mark to market and they can ride that out over time. And eventually they've got long duration in their portfolios. So eventually what will probably happen is that interest rates will come back down again, and then those portfolio values will probably, you know, rise again. Is, is that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And again, you, you can kind of think of the general investment account of these companies as a big income fund. Like they don't really care about the fluctuation in the value of the fund. Obviously they do. I'm simplifying, mm. but it doesn't really matter to them because they have war chests of cash you know, they have bonds coming due every year. They've got tens of billions of dollars in new premium dollars coming in the door. That that predictable cash flow of knowing premiums are coming in the door gives them a lot of a lot of comfort as well. And the reason, and that's the reason you haven't seen a run on insurance companies because you know, at the end of the day, this is financial security for families. Mm. This is you know the this is the last place you cash out. This isn't meant to be accessible. As I say, there's two forms of savings. There's saving savings, which is the stuff you roll every year of your life, and then there's deferred spending. You know, you're saving up for something. And traditional banks is typically where the deferred spending comes in. You're saving up for a down payment on something or or some major purchase. And the last question about this, because I think it's you know it's an interesting topic, and for everybody to you know learn more about it. One of the other questions I have is you you were mentioned that there was tax benefits related to a whole life insurance policy. Is that on the income? That's on the growth that's happening of the cash value, or what? Where is that? Where is that coming from? So in the United States, at least that's where I sit. So, and I think this plays out for most of the throughout most of the world is the money's going to go in after tax. So it's it's you've already paid income tax on the money, but once it goes in, it's never taxed again. And that's that's because of a few different things. First of all, death benefits are always income tax free. So you know that that million dollars or whatever the number is at the end of my life will pass to my family, totally income tax free. Along the way, that policy will build the cash value, which eventually will be more than you pay in. So eventually, there will be a gain. Those cash values grow on a tax deferred basis, meaning you don't pay any taxes as that growth occurs, just like any other kind of retirement account. The difference, though, is generally speaking, with plans like that, if there is tax deferral, eventually you're going to have to pay taxes on the gains. With life insurance, 
That's also true, actually. If I cash the policy out, you know, 30 years down the road and I've got three times what I paid in there, that additional two times what I paid in there would be taxable as ordinary income. But there's this special provision inside of life insurance, which is called a policy loan, which allows you to borrow against the policy, typically at similar rates to which it's growing. So if it's growing at five, you're typically borrowing against it around five. So borrowing your own money sounds blasphemous. Like, why would I pay interest to borrow against my own money? But it's basically a wash. It's kind of like taking money out of the bank. You're getting 0% interest. Well, if you're borrowing against an asset at the same rate that you're growing it at, it's effectively 0% interest. But what it allows you to do is get access to that additional growth, income tax-free, because loans are not taxed by the IRS. This is a major advantage for a lot of people. And really, I think the mass affluent crowd who feels the tax bite the most, you know, not the super wealthy and not the, mm-hmm. not, not, not the classes, it's really that, that upper middle class. Those are the ones that are taking the most advantage of it. And that's personally why I enjoy it in my portfolio so much. So in other words, you get access to the money that you've brought into the life insurance policy. And in hopes, if you take that money out, in theory, you could invest it in a venture or into stocks or anything that could potentially earn a pretty high return. And then you can, and now now in the life insurance policy, is it the case that your cash value is not growing because you've taken the cash out and therefore you're taking responsibility for growing it once you've borrowed it and then you put it back, you know, at, at some point, or is it, it's not growing in value when you're taking the money out, right? No, no, it does. This is, this is the secret. This is, this is what a lot of, if you, if you do your research online, you'll see a lot of talking heads talking about this concept. It's every company's different. So I don't want to make statements about mm. every company. So do your research, but generally speaking, some of the best companies you can do this with is you have a policy like mine, it's growing at I think 5.3 or 5.4% per year right now, based on where it's at in the contract. And I can borrow against it right now at about 5%. And that borrowing event does not impact the growth of the policy. It's almost like I have a policy and then I go across the, the street to Bank of America and take a loan and assign that policy as collateral. The two transactions not affect each other. But these insurance companies are happy to be the bank too, because if they're going to get 5% on a loan to me, against an asset that they're holding. So there's, there's a zero credit risk that they don't, we don't, there's no default risk at all to them. We're, you know, if you can get a riskless 5%, who wouldn't make that deal right now? So, so they're, they're happy to do that. So mm. no, that's the idea is, you know, I, so if I have a real estate investment, I can take a big loan, buy that real estate. And as the cash flow from that real estate comes in, I can replenish the loan. It can essentially, there's a lot of people that call this infinite banking. I personally, just in full disclosure, don't love that term. I think a lot of this stuff is missold and people are preyed on with some of these concepts. So I'm, I'm careful not to be the infinite banking guy, but but that's the concept. And that's where a lot of people have this as an alternate to traditional banking. So tell us just before we get into the big question of the podcast, just tell us for those people that are interested in this, where should they go to learn more about what you're doing? Where should they go to get the book and all of that? Yeah, so I mean, like I said, this is a this is a, a widely held concept. This is not new. There's a lot of people out there that do this. I think buyer beware. You know, you want people with credentials. Mm. I actually I've worked my entire career with a lot of these folks who are very well versed in how to do this. So you can I'm not one by the way. So uh, this is not a commercial for myself. But you could always reach out to me. Find me online. I'm on TomWallTalks.com. You could reach out, and I could definitely connect you with the right people to make sure that that was a properly designed system. My book, Permission to Spend, was actually more focused on the insurance piece than it, than it was thinking about it as a bond alternative, although the book does talk about that. You know, my mother, just one story, you know, my mother died when I was 26 of lung cancer, and she and my father had just gotten into their mid-50s. 
making really good money. We're just about to travel the world. And, and after years of sacrifice, we're finally there. And then it was taken away. And then and over the course of my career, I've heard countless stories of this. And oftentimes it's more so, you know, that you do make it to retirement, but it's not 30 years, you get five or you get 10 before the health issues take over and you can't travel the world, you can't spend. And traditional finance is all saying, you know, you know think about the 4% rule. For those familiar with that, it basically says, based on historical calculations in the United States, 4% was, was kind of the, the safe number. And that's really a pathetic number. I mean, if you have got a million dollars, you can only spend 40,000 per year after tax, it's less than a hundred bucks a day. That is not a wealthy retirement. And so I, I, the, my whole career, I started thinking about, you know, are there strategies where we can not necessarily create outsized returns? You know, there's, that's, that's the unicorn everyone's chasing. But more so, are there strategies that we can use to push income to the earlier years of retirement to give people permission to spend and enjoy that which they've spent decades accumulating, but still know that their family's taken care of, they're covered for long-term care. If they need a, if there's some liquidity shock, they've got access to capital. And whole life insurance does all those things. It guarantees, you know, for me, it guarantees my boys are going to receive a legacy. It guarantees that my spouse is taken care of so I can spend or even annuitize other assets. It's got a stable, accessible source of cash that I can tap into for whenever I want. So if that unforeseen event happens, and what it'll really allow me to do is it'll allow me to invest more aggressively, you know, right before retirement and during retirement, which every study ever done has shown the more, the more equity exposure you can have over time, you know, because you feel good elsewhere in your portfolio, the better off you're going to do. So my courses, my, my talks, everything can be found on TomWallTalks.com or, or my book is in all formats on Amazon, talks all about those strategies. And I, you know, I, don't, I don't know the tax code across, across the globe, but no matter where you are, you know, this strategy I think is, works and is probably available to you. Fantastic. We'll have that in the show notes for everybody. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Oh, the circumstances. I want to say it was, I, don't, I actually forget the year, 2017, 2018. I get all my friends. I have, I got a couple, you know, nerdy friends and they start texting me about this thing called Bitcoin. And I had heard about it before. So I, I, I had known about Bitcoin. It was, one of the, it was one of those kick yourself moments where I remember reading it about it in like Wired Magazine, you know, six or eight years earlier when it was worth a penny or something like that. And then I dismissed it because I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't buy it. I couldn't see it anywhere. So I said, whatever. So some, I, was, I, was, I was around the time it was hitting around $2,000 per value or something like that. And I was like, you got to do this. You got to do this. There's, there's a groundswell going on online. I'm in all these, all these forums. So I'm like, whatever, I'll, I'll buy some. So I, I, don't, I don't know. It wasn't a whole lot of money. I was five or 10 grand. I think I threw at it. And then it turned into a lot more than that in short order when I think it hit $20,000 just within a year. So that was good. Made some money. And then, of course, what goes up must come down. I came down, and I went down for a while. Long story short, as the next wave happened, you know, I started to dab a little bit too late, but then the NFT craze happened. And boy, did I, there was, there was one in particular I really believed in. I bought it and man, it went up. I think I, I think it went 15 times my investment at that time. And I'm just sitting here bragging to my friends, sending them screenshots of my accounts. You won't believe what happened. And of course, I sold those NFTs and moved it to safety, which was Bitcoin. And then boy, did that fall. I lost over half the value in those gains. Just because you know I was riding high and I was just going to let them ride, and it was found money. And I think my lesson and my takeaway from that was, you know, those things do happen. And if you have the guts to throw some capital at good ideas or even just trendy ideas, you can make money. But a bird in hand is absolutely worth two in the bush. You know, if you make some money, sell or at least take half off the table. I'll never, I'll never make that mistake again if I ever get those kind of gains in the future. 
Yeah, that's a, it's a very important lesson, you know, and I think part of it's understanding like long-term returns, you know, and understanding that stock market returns over the long run is somewhere between eight and 12%, depending on the the years that you pick the measurement period over, but let's just say 10%. And the average bond portfolio over the same long period of time is four to 5%. And so when you see that you're making 100%, 200%, 300%, 500%, it's just that having that awareness to be able to trim some of that. And I've also, you know, seen in my, in my experience too, I'm good at trimming on the downside. I have stop losses in place for stuff, but when it comes to the upside, you know, it's just so easy to let it go. And, you know, think back to that time, you know, people were talking about Bitcoin, a million, Bitcoin, a hundred thousand. So it really is hard. And I think that the lesson from my side is that you've got to kind of set some, you know, some point. And all you got to do is the easiest way to do this is take 50% off the table. Keep yep. the other 50%, but take okay. some action to take some off of that. That's kind of what I, I would be with. What, if you were to advise a young person who's getting into a similar situation, what would be your recommendation for them? No, I think that's, I think that's great. I think it's, there's no hard and fast rule, obviously, but I think, yeah, if you, if you make some gains, you know, take some off the table. There's, there's, there's strategies that say, if you make any gain, you know, take back your original investment and now you're whole, and then you can let it ride or whatever you're comfortable with in your risk tolerance. You know, a big part of my work and my research was really around all, you know, what can you do on the safe side? How can you have your safe money not sitting in cash or literally, like sometimes literal dollar bills? How can you not have your money sitting in, in that growing along the way so that you know a piece of your portfolio is always growing, but also accessible? You know, retirement accounts tend to tie up until 59 and a half in the US or, or other or, or later ages elsewhere. If you can get those tax advantages, but don't have those limitations, you know, I know people that actually use these assets that I've been talking about for the last half hour mm. as to invest at the bottom of COVID, you know, when the market was at its lowest, you know, they were buying stocks hand over fist because they knew the world would come back and they've done very well with that. So I would say risk is okay. Stupid investments are, are okay as long as it's an appropriately small part of your portfolio. But to the extent you can find other prudent, guaranteed derived assets in that portfolio, feel a lot better doing it. So what's a resource either of yours or any others that you've come across in your life that you'd recommend to our listeners? A resource of mine. That's a good question. You know, I honestly, just the financial trades, I think they're all good. I shy away from, you know, some of the talking heads online. I'd say just, you know, the, advi- the advisor trades are, 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 tends to be the best advisor today by Nafe, I think is who, who comes out with that one is probably one of the best ones that I've, that I've come across. The Journal of Financial Planning, you're going to get peer-reviewed academic articles versus people that are trying to sell you something. Mm. Those are the best resources if you wanted to dig in. Great. And last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? The two add value to as many people as possible and be the voice of reason in this space. You know, I think whole life insurance gets a bad rap because there's not, I wouldn't say so many people think they're unscrupulous. I think they're more, more uneducated. It's advisors that are just started in the business or they were just unfortunate to start with the wrong companies, or they just don't know how to, how to talk about it. Right. Mm. There's a lot of misinformation out there that gives this whole space a black eye, but it's also one of the time-tested strategies that predates pretty much every other financial vehicle out there. And that's for a reason. It provides a lot of security and a lot of safety and it's, a, it's the cornerstone of my plan. So mm. my goal is, to, is just to go from reaching thousands of people to, to tens or even hundreds of thousands of people in short order. Exciting. Thank God for well, social. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Tom, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, go out there. Go out there and take those risks. Just make sure that you do it responsibly and, and take, take those gains off the table when you get them. And that is a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.